are in the grotto pod. I am in the grotto pod. Bridget Quinn is in the grotto pod. She True. is fixing her sweater, which she wisely <laughs> took off minutes what before. What was I thinking? I walked in here wearing a sweater, and it's hot in San Francisco. It's, don't even get me Frickin started. If you want to hear sunny. about how hot it is in San Francisco, tune into my other podcast, Is It Good for the Jews, where I spend 10 minutes complaining. <laughs> About how hot it is. Did you hear that thing about uh, the head of the EPA says that maybe there is a global warming, but it doesn't mean it's bad? And I was thinking about you because I was like, Larry thinks it's bad. It's my least favorite part of the apocalypse. Right. I get it. Yeah. I can't stand it. Well, I don't get it because actually I love the warm days. Okay. But it's, but too, it's bad. I know right. it's bad. There's two, there's yeah. two elements here. There's yeah. do you like warm weather? And yeah. there is it's February. Yeah. And if I wanted to live in Phoenix. Right. I'd live in Phoenix. And Which, as I said, I'm going to Phoenix after the show. I, I don't want to live in Phoenix. <laughs> Larry's driving to Phoenix. I am driving I to I feel it's very 70s. Where it's, I mean, weather-wise or decade-wise? No. Yeah, decade. You 1970s, know, get in the car and drive to Phoenix. If Alice, Flo, Vera, and Mel are waiting for me on the other end, oh, that would be fantastic. Be and you so know what? Good. They can just kiss my grits. <laughs> Today, wow! I haven't heard that in a while. Probably since the, then. The, <laughs> today on the Grotto Pod, our guest is oh my god, the fabulous Julie Lithcott Hames. Truly, one of my favorite people. Bridget, tell us a little bit about Julie Lithcott Hames. Well, I guess what I want to say about Julie is not the things that everyone else will tell you about Julie, which mm-hmm. is maybe I should do those too because those are like I'll one do of those. Days. Okay, I'll do so those. I'll just tell you what I know about Julie, which is that I met her maybe eighteen months ago. She was new to the Grotto. Maybe it was two years ago. And, you know, nice person, smart. Mm -hmm. A lot of people at the Grotto are like that. Mm -hmm. But I liked her. thought she was awesome. Didn't really know her background. Didn't know much about her. Uh, Knew she had a book coming out. And as I got to know her, was like, wow, she is really smart, really cool. I want to know this person better. She heard about my book, mm-hmm. told me I and she lives in Palo Alto. Palo Alto, far yeah, away. Right? I yeah. a place I rarely go at the time. And she said, you know, I have a friend who's an artist in Palo Alto and you have a book on woman artists, I'm gonna hook you guys up. And I thought that's super nice. Yeah. You went to Palo Alto and went, whoa. I went it's really nice here. Met Sabashir, who is a fantastic painter. Julie met me in her studio. They had a salon. Oh yeah, you uh, did that uh, thing with her. Yeah, Saba Salon. Yeah. And Julie, I know it's hard. Um, Beautiful, Saba's work is beautiful. Julie, uh, basically, way before my book came out, said, Oh, I'll do, uh, I'll do like a QA with you. I find out after all of this, Julie's like a best selling writer of a book called. How to Raise an Adult. Yeah, How to Raise an Adult. Uh, which was me- mega bestseller and is kind of a star in Palo Alto. And basically, all I want to say is a person filled with generosity, willing to reach out to other people, willing to put her own time on the line, willing to make connections, and funny, smart, great. I can't say enough good things. She's one of my favorite people. And I will now give you the boilerplate okay. version of Julie Lithcott Hames. She is she's more than writer famous at this point, no, I think. She's, she's like culturally famous. She's written two books, as, as Bridget said, How to Raise an Adult, uh, which is described as a manifesto that exposes the harms of helicopter parenting. If you are a helicopter parent. Which, if you're a parent now, you probably, you probably are. are. Yeah. Can I just say that came out of her being the dean of students at Stanford. Dean of students at Stanford for 10 years. Yeah. Stanford undergrad, Harvard, JD. And you know how people always say they went to Harvard? Yeah. I didn't know that for a super long well, time. I didn't know until I read her book. Let me tell you something about people that go to Harvard. There's two kinds. Okay. There's people that tell you you went to Harvard, they yeah. went to Harvard, and there's people who just say they went to school in Boston. I didn't, didn't know either. I've met a few of those. Yeah. Like, I went to school in Boston, and then you have to drag it and out of Tufts them. Tufts or? Yeah, yeah. Then Boston, <laughs> well, Cambridge. Oh, okay. 
They're trying to keep it on the down low. This I year, like that. I, I admire that. If I went to Harvard, I'd probably talk about it all the time. I would totally talk about yeah. it all the time. I'd wear sweatshirts, hats. Me too. Oh, my God. So many sweatshirts. Yeah. This year, Julie pivoted away from being sort of a pundit about parenting, a parenting pundit, as it were, uh, and wrote a memoir called Real American, which... Oh, my God. I read in galleys. You were in tears, right? I was on a plane, mm. and I was sobbing on the plane. Sobbing. Did and anyone come to see if everything was okay? No, not at all. And Can you tell I, us what airline that was so we can advise Hawaiian. people not to fly? They're nice. No, I thought Hawaiian Oh, they were just fantastic. too laid back. But... It, it, why was I crying? I was crying because uh, I have also written a memoir, unpublished, and me too. The uh, yeah, who hasn't? And <laughs> just the bravery, the beauty, the meeting of art and heart in that book nice. blew my mind. So one of the things that I find interesting about Julie is that she was in the midst of a very successful career in academia, right? And she pulled up stakes and decided, you know what I'm going to do? She's in her 40s. She said, I'm going to get an MFA. I'm going to go to the California College of the Arts. CCA. Get an MFA. And you know what? She studied She studied with uh, Faith Adiele, who we've oh, also had on the Grotto Pod. The very delightful yes. Faith Adiele. So there's all kinds of stuff to talk to Julie about. And can, I want to get, Can I say oh, one more thing? Yeah, please. Because the Stanford dean job was already a pivot. Did you know that? Because she went to law school? Yeah. No, she she was a lawyer in Silicon Valley at Cooley Godward, which is a big oh, firm. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that and that's a big, I'm sure you make less money as a dean than you do yeah. as a lawyer. You I, make less money doing almost anything than being a successful that's lawyer. That's probably true. Yeah. So all I'm saying is here's a person, you know, has already done a mid-career pivot mm-hmm. and then does it again. That kind of two. blows my mind. And one of the things that I'm interested in is what compels a yeah. person and what uh, empowers a person to feel comfortable making these decisions. How do you walk away from something so uh, lucrative? Uh, well, Focused? Beyond, beyond lucrative, like being at Stanford, like just so uh, so unimpeachably, I've made it. Right. And how do you leave that lifestyle? It must be like leaving the military or something. You know, you're just used to this sort of bunker, and then you're out. Yeah, I want to know about that. That's a good. That's a good. So question. we're gonna go get Faith. No, nope. we're gonna go oh get Julie. God. We're gonna go get Julie. If we find Faith, we'll bring her in too. You know, <laughs> there's almost no one but here. I think it's you and me. Who we're looking for is is Julie, though. So we're gonna get here and uh, stay tuned. This is gonna be a treat for you. Yeah. Welcome to the Grotto Pod. Thank you. Julie just gave us a pro tip for podcasting. Any of you would-be podcasters out there, we didn't know. 53 episodes of this one, 165 of my other one. happy year anniversary. Happy year anniversary of the Grotto Pod. Congratulations, guys. Thank Thank you. Thank you, Facebook, for that. uh, (laughs) What was that pro tip, Larry? uh, Put your phone on. Airplane mode. It actually is a pro tip for podcasts and for radio. And really, anytime you don't want your phone to disturb the conversation you're having. Wow. I'm blown away. I am too. Right, <laughs> right away. Write that down. That's I, kind I of have. a mic drop right there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Can I just say, like, for the listeners, because um, I have been a listener up until today. And now I'm on. Hey! The Grotto Pod is this adorable little thing. And I know Larry doesn't like sci-fi or fantasy, um, but this reminds me of Harry Potter's Under the Stairs little house, only oh, smaller. Um, yes. And mm-hmm. it's it's really a cool place. So uh, I can see why magic emanates from here because <laughs> it is sort of an otherworldly kind Aww. of dimension. Do you, think, do you think we have room for a loft? 
Yeah, oh, definitely. Larry says Look we at do. All that. You've got all that space above yeah, us. I think yeah, we have room for a lot. Yeah. Well, Julie, um, I'm going to take a picture of Julie looking up because I thought that was very cute. Awesome. <laughs> we can put it on the website. We're going to. <laughs> this is where the magic happens, friend. Bridget tells tale, and actually, um, I looked on your website and found this to be true that you have been in sort of a whirlwind of touring and speaking and doing all kinds of stuff. So why don't you get us up to speed on what you've been up to? Sure. Uh, so my second book, Real American, came out October 1st. And I've been on a book tour um, supported by my publisher this time, which has been awesome. Oh, so, good. Uh, so I got about six weeks of book tour, October 1 to, say, mid-November, and then the holidays happened. And then they sent me out on another kind of eight-day swing in late January to early February. So I have a couple more gigs, like I'll wow. be at Babylon and I'll be up at uh, Copperfields, and I'm doing that oh, great. kind of as a post-fire uh, request. That's happy in, to respond. That's in Sonoma, guys. Right. Um, but my tour is essentially coming to a close on the second book, and uh, I'm still out there on the road with my first book uh, with speaking oh. gigs for How to Raise an Adult, which is kind of my bread and butter grateful for every one of those opportunities. So I do a lot of traveling. And we are going to get into that pivot eventually. Um, before I go any further, I did want to tell people that Babylon Salon is a local event. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. And, and what co-founded day by our own Lori Doyle. Yeah, right. Lori Ann Doyle, co-founder. That is March 9th uh, at the Armory Club, which is a really cool venue. Very nice. I saw a little Porchlight uh, series there once. Are we going to get Julie up in time that people could... Oh, yeah, yeah. Julie oh, will be great. up next week. So All right. people oh, good. will be able to listen. Um, We'll go to the nuts and bolts of that okay. off mic. Okay. Uh, Julie, what's the difference between a tour that's supported by your publisher and one where you're just kind of ragtag and going for it, you're on your own? Um, sweat, blood, and tears, I oh, think. Yeah. Um, with my first book, How to Raise an Adult, you know, this anti-helicopter parenting manifesto, my, I kept saying to my publishing team in the months prior to pub, to pub date, so when are we going to talk about book tour? When are we going to talk about book tour? Because I naively assumed I've got right. a publisher. They're a big publisher. It's Henry Holt and company. It's what we'd all assume. It's what we'd Correct. all assumed. And um, they kept saying, we'd like to keep you local. <laughs> and I kept thinking, I don't want to just be local. I want to be where anyone wants to talk about overparenting. And we wow. want to keep you local turned out to be a euphemism for we're not putting you on a right. book tour. So I had chronicled my departure from Stanford, my decision to go get an MFA, to try to improve my craft, to try to get a book written and so on. I had chronicled that on Facebook. So at this point, upon finally getting into my thick skull that I'm not being sent on a book tour, I went out to Facebook and I said to my friends, hey, so I'm not, I don't have a book tour planned, but I still want to come. So if your company, if your community is interested in these topics and you're willing to fly me out, and that was my ask. If you're willing to fly, if you're able to fly me out and put me up somewhere like your couch, I will come. And I cobbled together my own book tour in the fall of 2015 for How to Raise an Adult through my Facebook community. And, and that book has been huge. It has. Well, I, I was going to ask, what role do you think that played in the book being huge? Well, um, I had to get out. This is not a book. You know, this isn't sort of a literary novel that one kind of contemplates right. in one's head and around a dinner starter. table. It's it's about a current topic of concern in communities around America. Right. And I knew I needed to go be in community with people who mm -hmm. wanted to grapple with this issue. So I can't know what would have happened without my scrappy book tour, but I will say two things um, I've, I, I think that I've learned about myself and my, my publisher has learned about me um, is uh, 
that there's plenty of local media that can come if you you know publishers worry right. we, we can't send you on a book tour we can't pay for you to fly we can't pay for you to stay because we're probably not going to sell enough books to cover the cost of that I think they struggle to really understand the power of social media and the power yes. of a following so if you can manage to tell people through Twitter or Instagram or Facebook that I'm coming to your town you can stimulate interest in events and I think publishers particularly big publishers are kind of late to that party mm-hmm. they're just beginning to understand it agree. the second thing my publisher publisher learned was Julie Lifcott Hames is a scrappy motherfucker, you know? <laughs> yeah. And like, I will, can I say that? Are we like regulated uh, yeah. by the oh, FCC or the FTC yeah. or the, <laughs> no. or the Department FDA's. of Homeland Security? Yeah. One sweat, of those. Oh, sorry, Larry. I'll I'm be sorry. sweating anyway. It's hot. Okay. <laughs> it is hot in here. Um, I'm wishing I'd worn a tank top instead of a sweater, but it is, it's February in San Francisco. We've been through that. I heard. No, I know. We well, discussed <laughs> it in the intro Oh, you did? Bit. Well, yeah. you discussed it in one of the prior episodes yeah, I was listening to on the drive up. I get a little obsessed. So I think that's why they funded a book tour this time because they saw that I was willing to put my energy and effort into getting to places and hustling. And this speaks to the art of the hustle. And you're promoting a book, you know, as BQ knows with broad strokes, you have to be out there. You are going to be your book's best advocate, best publicist, best friend. And we need a team. We're grateful for a team. Anyone else willing to make our work theirs. Um, But ultimately, it's about us hustling. And can I just say, Everyone needs to do that. Everyone. It's, well, it, there's nobody getting a book deal who doesn't need to be the promoter of their book. What strikes me as a former boy romantic is how much it resembles <laughs> the life of an indie band. Yes. Exactly. You know, record record label's not going to help no, you anymore. No, exactly. But you know what? I often it is like that. wish that my tour had looked like... Um, indie band tour. You know the band t-shirts and it has some geographical logic to yes. it? Like <laughs> Bay Area, Portland, oh, Seattle, right, right, right. right? There's a logic because you're in a bus and yeah. you're not going to ping back and forth across country. My Sometimes tour I see was a ping pong. Been, oh, and my I'm like, God. oh my God, she was in Cleveland and now she's in Florida. What? What? And then back to back here. the Northeast. <laughs> right. You know, so there isn't necessarily that carefully designed. No. There's no orchestration. There's no bus. But she did give me an idea for a merch table next time you read. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, for yeah. Sure. oh, no, I have merch. Oh, I have oh, yeah, merch. You I mean, and you yeah. need merch. Actually, you have a whole a whole new part of Real American that's come out. It's kind of a movement, right? Can I say something? Well, like we, you know, I have. Um, I'm 50. <laughs> I so, say that. So are we. Don't I have. say that yeah, to, to preface. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed the fruits of that just yesterday. <laughs> Congratulations! Thanks. Happy it birthday! Was your birthday no. Okay. Oh, the fruits. Oh, uh-oh. I'll tell you later. Okay, off mic. <laughs> like when we're back in airplane. <laughs> off yes, airplane. Off yeah. airplane. Okay, so what are we saying? Oh, social media. That's why I give my age. So I work with a few people who are younger than me. Who like help, everybody, help me. Um, and my younger uh, teammates have said, uh, "You need to be on Instagram, and you need a hashtag for this book. So we have a new hashtag, Real Americans Everywhere, and actually an Insta handle, Real Americans Everywhere. And we're just trying to depict pictorially, which is what Instagram is, the faces of this truism, which is that we're all real Americans. Right. Now, when you say team, is this the publisher's team? No. Or this is a team you've assembled? Yeah. So, for example, I have used – I have had – uh, contracts for now three books. I'm I'm delivering a third book manuscript after yeah. I start writing it. I will deliver it by Labor Day. But um, I have used my advances to pay so other smart. people to help me. So with How to Raise an Adult, I had five research assistants who helped me pull together the research that was going to be the underpinning for this thesis about the harm of overparenting. Um, similarly, um, I you know you are blowing my mind right now. I pay. Um, 
for I consultants to you know I'm not a social media expert and I need mm-hmm. help and so um, I have invested in you know uh, um, folks hiring consultants to help me be better. Um, at doing what I'm aiming to do. So it's a trade-off because I don't have all the money in the world by a long shot. And, you know, it's how much do I invest, for example, in Real America in a memoir on race. Um, if it's going to take off, might be worth investing a little bit more. I can't keep paying people to invest in a project that may uh, have a shorter run than I know. Right. But when you start, so you, when you conceptualize this project, do you conceptualize the whole thing? I'm going to need this team or is it afterward that you think, what's it going to take to make this be successful? Well, this is where everything I learned with book one gets plowed into the development of book two. And so this time around, I was able to be more intentional about uh, the team concept. Um yeah, I've written a memoir on race. It's about my lived experience as a black and biracial woman in a country where black lives weren't meant to matter. I'm paraphrasing Michelle Alexander, who's one of my blurbs. blurbers. Um, I know that I'm the expert on my own life, but I'm not an expert on race. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I work with an artist and activist who um, is a consultant with me on how to be in community with people on these terribly difficult issues around race. Because I know I'm going to get questions that, you know, I can go into that first person, well, I think this or I do that. But people are looking the minute they're – if they're interested in this topic, they've come to hear my reading, then they want to talk about, well, what do we do? We versus I. uh, Yeah. um, Right. That's a lot of responsibility. Right. And I didn't want to – I didn't want to lose the moment. Right. I didn't want to say, well, I don't really, I can't tell you what to do oh. because all I know is my own life. You know, I wanted right. to right. get some advice and guidance. Which is incredibly generous. And that is something about you that I think is um, evident in all the ways that you're in community. I'm mm-hmm. blown away by your generosity with people, especially mm-hmm. with myself. When we were talking yesterday in the intro. Oh, you were. Um, yeah. but, but, uh. but, you know, where does that energy come from? Where does that willingness to connect come from? You know from? what? I, for, I th- thank you, but um, I'm an empath. I love humans. I feel humans. You feel that for I'm you. interested in us <laughs> all getting where we want to go. I'm interested and concerned about the obstacles. Um, and you know, this sort of dovetails. I don't. It's going to sound now like I'm tooting my own horn, but I do want to mention there's well, mm. there's another set of people that I'm paying, mm. and that is a set of young artists I've asked to join me on this book tour. So mm. at every stop on the Real American right. book tour, I've asked for the that. whether it's a bookstore or a nonprofit or someone on my team goes and finds a young poet or spoken word artist in that community who's going to open for me. And they get three minutes and they read their original work or perform it. And they get a signed copy of my book. And the consultant I work with, the activist artist, Jay Marie Hill, when I first was discussing this with them, Jay Marie said, you're going to just give them a signed copy of your book. You know, don't you think they need an honorarium? And I was like, honorarium, I don't have that money. And, but then Jay Marie said, we have to pay artists and we don't, we don't just discard that obligation because they're young. And so I stand up now just like I did wow. last night in San Francisco, yeah. San Francisco Friends School with a young man named Arvon Williams who's 19 who did this amazing spoken word delivery. And I stand up afterwards and I say, Arvon, thank you for joining me on this this book tour journey. And I do this because while I have the privilege of a microphone and an audience and effort made into getting the audience to come and a platform, while I have this moment of book tour, I want to step to the side before I talk and make room for someone coming up on the path behind me. And they get an honorarium. 
I am, and it's not much, but it is not insignificant either. Yeah, there's a difference between nothing and something. That's right. I mean, look, as writers, we know that. Right. We've all written for right. almost nothing. Exactly. And and the difference between a hundred dollars and nothing. Is and I got to say, as as a writer who's written for nothing and is still asked to write for nothing, oh, yeah. someone yeah. said you got to pay. I might go. Wait a minute. I'm not getting paid. Why should I pay someone else? Right. But, you're a, better, you're a better person than me. That's well, no, no, no. Well, she's getting paid, too. I'm just farther yeah. down the path, and I am yeah. getting paid. Yeah. And my writing and speaking is earning me a living, so and I'm trying to share that with other people. I want to steal your idea. Yeah. Is that a good thing or an annoying it's thing? It's a good thing. I'm stealing your idea. Yeah. I, that now. I think I did. Look, really I'm, a a good thing. I'm a former I'm so intellectual excited. property lawyer um, right. who's now a writer, and so my sense of ideas and words and who owns what and has really shifted over time. Yeah. I mean, I'm very interested in sharing good things. Yeah. I don't I, have I a proprietary ownership to any idea. Yeah. thing I've ever heard. I think it is absolutely essential that young people be given a voice in the real world. Yeah. Because they're shut down everywhere in the real world. Well, and it, it's also, again, it's another rock and roll thing. Give the local band a chance to yes, open for exactly. it. Yes, exactly. So it, it is a rock and roll thing. Secretly, Larry, you that's my next career. Star. Well, you know what? Oh I God, do sing. Let's do a band. I do sing. <laughs> and there was a time right when now. I thought, like, oh, I should have gone into I should have made that my thing. I love singing. And, um, oh. you know. Well, as long as we're talking about potential careers. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about all of your one. careers. Prior careers. <laughs> right. Now, there's something that struck me during the intro. We were talking about how the challenges you must have faced from all coming at you from everywhere, from, you know, inside yourself, from family, from from financial pressures to go from intellectual property lawyer, yeah. Stanford dean, yeah. MFA, I'm going to write some books. Yeah. But the thing that strikes me when I'm talking to you, just listening to the way you approach um, marketing your book, I guess, or how you, you know, Promote. the stories you just told us yeah. is that you have the hallmarks of a successful person mm. and you're just going to be successful at whatever you do. You're mm. going to approach it as if it's going to end up to be a success. Mm. All of that mm-hmm. being said... What possessed you to leave all these jobs <laughs> and end up here in this room with us? In the mighty God <laughs> I'm inspired to make less and less money over time. I, I can see that. Your kids are like, Mom, what? You do like yeah. Benjamin Button income. Exactly. Kind of That's right. That is right. I am the Benjamin Button income example. You know, um, so oh, no. I loved your phrase, Larry, you said something about, I believe that things things are going to be a success. Um, I do very much believe that um, we cannot make it happen until we can tell the truth of it to ourselves. So that it being what I want to do next. So I have to summon the truth of that to my own consciousness, dare to tell myself that I might want to do something else. Then I have to dare to say it to people I love. Then I have to dare to start sharing it with friends. And I know that in the daring is an activation of my network and that by activating my network, the possibilities and opportunities and so on, the threads that become the woven cloth of the new, you know, that those things will become. Um, I think I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I'm not a tech person, but I am a um, idea generator. Um, I have, you know, a lot of, I'm at the strategy and vision level. I can see where I want to go. I often need a lot of help in getting there. Um, at Stanford, when I was a dean, I was notorious for having these great last minute ideas. Like, we should do this, you know? And, and my team's like, who's we, you know? And um, what, you what's and the me. plan? And when are we going to fit that in? Um, but I enjoy, uh, um, I, I don't ever want to be stagnant in my life. I don't want to coast. I don't want to do the equivalent of make partner or make tenure and let that status um, mean I stop growing. 
Uh, not to imply that people who make partner or tenure, you know, automatically do that, but it's possible. I don't intend to enter a resting phase until I'm dead. And so I am constantly interested in my own growth and moving to um, new professional opportunities has been um, incredibly growth inducing for me. And when you make these decisions, do you think about failing or do you think this will work? Oh, I think about failing all the time. I think I live at the – I walk the line or I am interested in the the duality of terror and exhilaration. I know that if I'm going to step out and step big, I might fall. I might fall flat on my face. I might be embarrassed. I might be ashamed. I might be judged. You know, As I've grown older, I've learned to care less about the judgment of others. So it's really my own measure now. How do I feel about the effort I made? Even if it didn't yield you know, the outcome I had hoped for by whatever measures, can I feel proud that I tried? Can I feel proud of what I learned? And so on. So the older I've gotten, the easier it's become to kind of take these risks. So this leap, if you will, from being a Stanford administrator to being an MFA student who hoped to get a book deal um, was a less risky leap in my being, in my mind, than leaping from corporate law to academia. I think so, yeah, mm-hmm. especially because academia, it would seem to me, that has more gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. Keeping you. I mean, you can go get an MFA and hope for the best, right? <laughs> Although, listening to your show with um, Jennifer Solomon, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, talking about agents and are they gatekeepers or are they just really excited to help you kind of get that book deal? I mean, many of us, until we yep. land that first book deal, we are, you know, approaching a wall that just seems to go all the way up to the heavens, you know, <laughs> with no doors, and you're like, where the hell is the opening to this profession? And so, you know, I do think. Um, the notion that I was going to try to make something of my writing by going to get an MFA and hoping that I would get enough mentorship and guidance that would land me an agent and then a book deal. I mean, I think those odds were long, mm-hmm. um, but I decided um, if it didn't work out that I would return to academia, mm. you know, that I would – I knew that I had skills. I knew that I could be employable right. in other places and other ways. What was and the I conversation could, like with your husband though? Ah, uh, the great Dan Lithcott Hames. Nice and actually, man. can I can I interrupt too? By the time you had that conversation with him, how fully baked was the idea? It was, was it like, you know what I think I'll do? Yeah, it was not fully baked. Um, <laughs> that surprises me. No, because he's my husband. No, 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 no. This dude, you know, we've been together for 30 years. And he's kind of an artist. He is an artist. Right. He's officially an artist. Yes. He was in so, UX, right. UI, design. He was at... Pandora in its early days, yeah. you know, so like doing a corporate the, thing. Yeah. But Dan recently said to me, actually, he said, if you sell your next book, meaning Real American, it was you know my my manuscript, my thesis for my MFA. He said, if you sell that, you know, to the publisher, how would you feel about me quitting as the startup he was at? And I said, absolutely, because he said I want to focus on my photography full time. So and I said, good. I would love that. Yeah, <laughs> sort really. Oh, you won. So. Um, I'm yeah. able to come to Dan with not fully baked ideas, but with dreams that are searching for form. And um, Dan uh, nodded his head and smiled and said, I would love to see that happen for you. Let's oh. figure it out. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Dan has been home part time with our children since they existed. And I've been the one with the full time career. Um, and so he's home a lot. He's now. home a lot now. Yeah. And. 
Dan has always been supportive of my work and my dreams and my professional goals. So I think he believed in me. I think he believed he can see when I get the bit, you know, between my teeth with an idea, like I Mm -hmm. think this is what I want to try to do next. And my language was quite equivocal. I said to him, I think I might want to try to do something with my writing, (laughs) you know, and he was like, okay, you know, but that he could see that within my eyes that I was saying, this is the next thing for me. And I am yeah. going to go. And he knows that I'm going to go balls to the wall yeah. right. on trying to make that happen. Because you guys have been together since college. Yeah, 30 years. Oh 1988. God. Wow. Yeah. Oh, so, you know, we go years. back. Know. We know Same. each other. And Same. he knows he knows what my effort looks like. And he knows how hard I am on myself. I mean, to make things happen. Right. Right. And he knows that I have the capacity to dream to big and to try to do it. And I would say, I mean, and, this, and again, this is just supposition, but given your track record, you don't do something halfway. You don't do something half, half-baked. Half half-baked. I mean, you probably decide, choose your path, follow the path. I'm so impressed with the way with you hiring people to promote your book. That just shocks me. Like, well, you don't just sit there and hope for the best. No, no. You, you, and that was that was what I learned. Julie and I met in a little group that we started at the Grotto of people who had books coming out. Yep, who weren't sure what to do. Right, you knew more than most people. Um, <laughs> And that's what I learned. You cannot sit there and think something's going to happen. It's not just a hustle. It's a plan. It's a plan. Yeah. But hustle is an important part because hustle is about tenacity and and being willing to try and fail. So you've got to have a plan and you've got to hustle. Um, and the truth is, you don't know about my failures, right? So you're here talking about right. three true. careers yeah. I've had, but I've had blow ups and failures, and you know I have done things half assed, and um, and it bothers me. You know, it, you, you know I'm on boards, and mm. when someone asks me to be on a board, I say, look, I believe in what you're doing, but I don't want to do this half assed. I want to. Um, if I'm going to do it, I want to do it well. I don't want you to regret. I don't want me to regret You know this investment of time. And so I've gotten better at saying no and I've gotten better at sort of really judging what is my actual capacity here at the mm-hmm. level of the ground of the operations of the tactics. You know, I know I'm committed at the mission level, but can I do the work to advance the ball? You know, And so I've, I've learned a lot about m- my actual capacity, what I cannot do. And you know, that allows me to make better decisions about what I will do. You're blowing my mind right now. I love it. Bridges' mind is blown, which it, is, it not is she's speechless, which is not necessarily good for a podcast. <laughs> no, but my my brain is really worrying about uh, because I'm you know also has to be on board. Yeah. I don't know how to say no when I'm enthusiastic about things, but you let people down. It sucks. It feels terrible. Well, and, as women, we really struggle with that. Yeah, because we're taught from young to please people. Right, <laughs> so. and, but, and what's the line between pleasing people? And being an ally and a support and, you know, yeah. and so it's hard. Well, to what you got to remember is you're not really a great ally or support if right. you're only able to give a fraction of what they right. want from you. Right. So it's actually more loving and more kind to, to be honest and say, right. you know, I love your work. I totally support it, but I just don't you have the bandwidth right now. Right. And don't be overly apologetic. Be clear. And it's so easy for me to give you this advice. But <laughs> Can I call you? <laughs> and, uh, so what folks need to do is like be each other's yeah. Uh, yeah. say no machine, right? Because I can say it so clearly when I'm being hypothetical with you, but I know it's hard because it hits you in the heart and we don't want to let anyone down and we don't want to be judged for saying no. And sometimes I find myself apologizing, you know, when people 
for example, won't pay me, you know, if I'm on, you know, I, 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 I make, too. that's how I make my living is speaking, giving some talks. Right. And if they don't want to pay me and I find myself in the early days, I'd say like, you know, I support my family. I hope you appreciate, you know, I went into yeah. this long paragraph yeah, of yeah, why yeah. you should pay me. And now, and I think Larry, like this is definitely something that is very genderized. And, oh. you know, the research shows that men have far less trouble asking for what they want and saying mm-hmm. what they're worth and even, women. Even Jewish men? Well, yes. And my husband is a wonderful Jewish man. So, you know, we have to, it's, it's hard to, um, it's hard to defend our own worth, but we right. must because no one right. else is going to do it for us. And also I feel such a responsibility. Oh my God, I'm getting free therapy on air. I'm sorry. But I feel such a responsibility to other women's voices, and, and I want to I want to amplify their voices. But sometimes, in order to do that, I see what I'm. I feel like am I putting my family second? Am I putting my work second? Am I you know? I, so that dance, I'm really working on that dance. You got to just realize if there were a hundred things you couldn't possibly do right. all at one hundred, right. so you have right. to pair that all the way back to the three or four things you can right. actually do, right. and just know that there's an infinite number of things. There's so much good out there. So right. many things you want to help and do. Like I just stepped around a homeless person mm-hmm. on the street. I mean, on my heart leapt. I know. Like, how can we and be a society where there's a homeless person right. covered we, in a blanket on the second street in, in San Francisco? And I right. waited for the line of people coming in the opposite direction to step over her. And I waited my turn as if this was a traffic right. accident. Right. And it is an, it's a human right. tragedy. Right. And it's, right. she's literally on the ground in front of me. And my empath self wants to stop and help and fix that. And I know rationally that I cannot solve that woman's situation today or tomorrow or probably over the course of the year. And I am anguished by homelessness. And yet I couldn't in that moment be uh, anything more than a compassionate person who um, could at least notice that there's a person there. And so it's, this is an example of maybe you can't be on their board, but, you know, in a moment you could give somebody, you know, who's asking in in that context for some advice or some guidance, but you cannot commit to the bigger thing. Right. Well said. It is hot in here. It's hot. Do you want to take a break and open the door? No, no, no. No, 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 We're good. Let's power through. Okay. uh, (laughs) Larry never says that, so I'm listening. uh, Well, because I want to talk about writing, too. Oh, yeah. Okay, sure. Let's let's do that because, you know, writers on writing, that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Uh, Though I do want to get to your background because I'm fascinated by it. But let's – I want to talk about – and again, I don't want to seem like I'm hammering home this, the decision, the decision to change careers. But what was your feeling about writing before you chose to pursue it? Mm-hmm. The reason, you know, I bring it up, you probably heard me say this, if you listen, like, there always seems to be that moment for writers when they either got great feedback or something where they said, yeah, you know, I'm pretty good at this. I think I'll pursue this. Nobody ever told me that. So what was it? An, <laughs> was it an idea you had? That's awesome. Nobody ever told me that. In fact, in in Real American, I write about a mentor of mine in college who was praising my oral rhetoric. It was a law class, like a civil rights class. And praising my ideas and my delivery, my rhetoric, my rhetorical style. But he said, your writing needs a lot of work. And he was right. Um, and I spent a number, you know, probably two decades trying to become a better reader, uh, which That's then, of course, point. improved my writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I read the poetry of Lucille Clifton uh, as an administrator at Stanford. My office ran our first year book program for freshmen called Three Books. We, we selected 
uh, three authors. That's one of my favorite stories in Real American. Yeah. yeah. Three authors uh, that, you know, were going to come be in conversation with each other in the freshman class and a faculty member. And every year, three authors, we would purchase 2,000 copies of each book, mail them out to the freshmen. Awesome. Okay. I and I, as a dean who was going to introduce the whole event, I had to read the books. And yeah. it was usually a joy. But one year, the faculty person who'd picked the books picked a poetry collection by Lucille Clifton called Good Woman. And I thought, oh, hell, I hate poetry. <laughs> I barely understand it. I don't get it. Oh, my gosh. I have to read this damn book. And so I opened it up, and an hour later, I look up at the clock, and I realize I've been immersed in this book. And for me, this is what it boiled down to. Lucille Clifton, who's now passed, but who I had a chance to meet when she came, you know, to be the author of that book with our freshmen. Um, She's an African-American woman. She writes about body and mothering and blackness and – and I found myself thinking, if this writing is possible, if she is possible, then maybe I am possible. So I found an invitation to understand myself better through Lucille Clifton's poetry. And and I began to write my own poetry. And I still oh, try to write poetry, poetry as a way to strengthen my prose. But to me, poetry is both discipline and boundless freedom. Yeah. You know, it's rigid. It's got a struct. It's got a set of rules. Um, or it, the rules being choose every single word mm-hmm. intentionally and place it on the page where it needs to be. There's a precision and yet total freedom. Right. And so it allowed me to – poetry is what I think of as my vitamins and my weightlifting. It strengthens my um, my prose writing self. So you read and you write poetry. I do. Oh. So I – wrote to know and understand and ultimately love myself. Okay. I didn't think I was going to share this stuff with other people. You can do that in a journal. Yeah. Um, I uh, decided that as uh, I I became interested in the value of my own ideas, which is a little bit of that writerly narcissism, right? Like I I have interesting ideas and I should share them with other people. And, you know, it was really that burning desire to write a book on the harm of overparenting, which has nothing to do with poetry. But Mm. I was concerned about young adults and how unformed they were and what we ought to do about it. And I cared about them enough to try to write a book worth reading. And that's what took me to the MFA to improve my craft. That's what I was wondering. Can we segue into young adults for a while? The the idea of helicoptering is not new. Uh, Two things. Like, feel like our brand is safety. I want to make sure he's safe. That's my thing, right? My brand's safety. You've got to feel like you're safe. And two, the idea that what if something happened because I didn't prevent it from happening? That's the crux of it. We're supposed to keep our kids safe until they can keep themselves safe. And implied in that is we have to teach them. Mm-hmm. To keep themselves safe, if they think right. they're safe because we're GPS tracking them and we always know where they are, you know that's sort of a false comfort. It is. Well, you don't tell them you're GPS tracking them. It's the creepiest you thing. Know what I just it found is out so about it. Creepy. Someone told me. Oh, we just did it in college. The day I mean, before yesterday. Just, with the, I had no idea. I think psychologists are going <laughs> to tell us why. in about 15 years, after a good longitudinal study, they're going to tell us how effed up people are who've been surveilled 24/7, 365. I'm serious. Yeah. I think that evidence is coming. Um, I think our children anyway, – anyway, so yeah. so yes, it's this imperative to keep them safe, but it's actually an imperative to teach them to fend for themselves. It, right. is, it is recognizing our own mortality because that will be gone and dead and our kid has to be able to fend without us. And then you, know, and then you send them to college and you think that summer leading up to college, all you think about is does he have life skills? Does he have any life skills? Do we give him life skills? 
It's a little late to start yeah. worrying about whether right. we gave them life skills. Yeah, and you don't really give someone life skills. They have to walk the path of life and develop right. the skills. Right. And you can't read about it. You can't. You can't send them to a, res- a resilience summer camp. You can't. <laughs> you know. I mean. Right. Yeah. right. So Do they have resilience so, summer camp. You know, it's never. It's never too late. People ask me, is it too late? I have a 20-year-old. And I say, that's not too late, but time's a ticking. You're at the 11th hour. And actually, my third book is How to Be an Adult, and it's for 20 and 30-somethings who are having trouble launching or adulting, as they say. Adulting. How do you research that? Uh, good question. I'll be, yeah, <laughs> the book, you know. the Let, book yeah. is, uh, I'm under contract. I yeah. haven't started writing it yet. I plan to talk with a lot of millennials. People, yeah. yeah. Because the lot. definition of adulting has changed since our parents were adults and since we became right. of age. Let me give you a little, a little picture of, um, uh, I don't I hope I'm not telling too many tales of my family, but, uh, I, uh, some of my nieces and nephews have been my biggest support yeah. more millennials in my own work. And I think it's partly because uh, they had divorced parents and had to mm. be on their own a lot mm. and are super skilled. Yeah. Uh, nice. And I think um, that maybe their parents got flack during their high school years for not being involved not enough mm-hmm. and the gossip mill wasn't so nice. But yeah. you know what? They're amazing. Yeah. yeah. I think adulting is as much a state of mind as it is a skill set. Yeah. It is mindset plus skill set. It is a verb. They've made it a verb. Um, it's, and I think so many young adults have no clue that being an adult should be a delicious adventure. You know, yeah. they look to their oh, parents. Loved right? Adult. Yes. I love yes, being a, a young Yes, and that's because they're the children of a generation that said, I may grow old, but I'll never grow up. Yeah. That were yeah. obsessed with youth and obsessed with True. not being adults. Right. And also very anxious about their own children. And so children grew up seeing adults yeah. are anxious. Why would I want to be an adult? Millennials are having fewer kids than prior generations. And I wonder if it's because we've made parenting oh, look so awful. Well, and I think there's another oh, layer yeah. to that anxiety that happens happens that I realized, and I tried to keep it on the down low because it's a horrible thing to admit, but when my kid left for school, that was one less person in my life day to day that thought I was really important. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So this gets to our egos, Larry. Yep. When I talk to parents at, you know, around the country, I say, look, we're motivated by three things, fierce love, tremendous fear, and our own needy ego. We feel better about ourselves when we can say, look how involved I am in my kid's life mm-hmm. or look how, you know, this, my kid has accomplished this, gotten into this school, gotten this award. Aren't they amazing? And what we're really saying is notice me. Notice me, please. My mm. worth is largely derived from you know how Parenting, my, yeah. my kid, which is really unhealthy. Any psychologist would yeah, say, yeah. like, no, mm-hmm. not good for kids. You know, get a life so your kid can have one too is my mantra. So many parents these days are like, oh, no, I'm sorry. I can't attend that amazing art opening right. in the city right. on Thursday night because we have a midterm on Friday. We have a midterm, yeah. Right? No, no, no. And I'm like, you don't have a midterm. Your kid has a midterm. Did your parents study for your midterms with you? Oh, no. My gosh. Why are we? And of course, we are not only studying with for the midterms, but we're many Hoping parents they do well. are. No, no, no. But, doing their kids' homework. Well, I was going to say so. Yeah. But doing here's the, the other side the of it: we have been maybe underinvolved <laughs> in our kids, and it wasn't until my son went to college where I was like, oh. It worked. Not for, yeah, not, were you really under-involved or did you just feel under-involved because everyone else compared was over-involved? Compared else. to everyone else. But I realized like, oh, they knew all – they were doing all these things to get their kids certain places, to get them things that we didn't do. And my kid didn't get those things. Yeah. Like, but, but I think he'll be fine overall. But when he gets to wherever he's gotten, he's going to have a self-confidence and agency. And he's going to have the skills that those right. micromanaged, over-parented kids don't right. have. So but it's I, sort of like you can, you can parent long-term for people listening, like to right. have comfort that it right. will pay off. And I will say my kid who was 19 – 
he could go build a house if he had to. <laughs> so, That's amazing. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, no, I've got an 18-year-old and a 16-year-old. My, yeah. my eldest is a freshman in college, so I'm yeah, still we're in the same watching place. all of this yeah. play out. And he just sent us a picture. He doesn't really love the food where he is, a very picky eater. Yes. And I've moved from like trying to get him to not be a picky eater to trying to inspire him to be a cook in his own life. Like, yeah. Fine, mm-hmm. if you're going to be picky, you got to make your own stuff. Well, he walked a mile to the Safeway in his college town, bought chicken. I only know this because I got a photograph of him with a plate with like chicken being caught with a knife and fork. He's yeah. like, look, I made myself a meal tonight in his dorm lounge. But see, I, he can cook in his dorm. My son, does, that's the thing he hates the most about college. You know what? Cook. There's a George Foreman. This isn't like oh. a Viking. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. He's yeah. grilling a piece of chicken. George Foreman is a great idea. It is a great idea. And my kid also baked bread for his oh, uh, dorm floor because he, he loves bread use, so much. We gave him a sourdough a, starter for oh, his birthday. Oh my gosh. And you can like, use a bread maker for that even. And he, dorm this is by hand. This is with like a well, don't you feel like it's selective? So cool. Like my child can build anything. Yeah, but he had to call me once from the my road son because he didn't say my son. My son, he's twenty. He didn't know <laughs> that you could put ninety-one octane gas. Uh, and I to 87. My, my poor son. Yeah, he didn't know because it had never come up. But, right. That well, no. Said, but he I has his know. areas of expertise. Better than putting exactly. diesel in to an That's unleaded true. tank. He did know that. You know, there are plenty of people who never learned that because they've never had to pump gas. Right. Yeah. Right. So, look, the point is, like, all of these skills. <laughs> yeah. No, because their parents always filled up the tank oh, for them. Oh. I have this story in, oh in my, my book, actually. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> Highly successful people never had to lift a finger. So then when they finally have to lift a finger, they don't know which finger to lift. So, um all of these skills have to be learned, and we can't yeah. expect perfection right. out of the box. And it is making the mistake with the gas, you know, the brand of octane, whatever, the type of octane that teaches you for next time. We can't and, – and that I think is a lovely example that gets to we hope our kids will have the most smooth sailing, the perfect path. Yeah. So these dips and blips and bumps feel like failure. And let's not see them as failure. Let's see them as growth. Well, as I say, should I feel totally. good or bad that he could call me and I could tell him? You should feel good that he could call you, but also yeah. that you don't feel the impulse to handle it. That's the thing. Right. What you've got to say, this is the best thing we can say to our, particularly our 20-year-olds, but also our 14-year-olds <clears throat> and maybe even our 9-year-olds. You empathize with the problem. Honey, I'm so sorry. That sounds awful or painful or unfortunate mm-hmm. or whatever the right response is. And then we pause and we say, how do you think you're going to handle it? Mm. And you're signaling, mm. it's not my problem to handle. I'm not handling right. it. And I think you're competent to think well, this through right. and handle it. And I that actually, empowers them. Huge, yeah. Though I have told that story to people a million times, at the time, I I just answered it straight. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you can put that in. Yeah. All right, thanks. Click. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of a, you know, can you put that in is, um, there isn't a whole lot of thinking through there. Like, you're not asking him to open a book on chemistry, like, let's study octane and figure out what 91 is compared to 88. Um, That's that's sort of the right, easy question to to answer. And he's learned that, and and now he knows that. And I didn't want him to feel like, oh, my God, you don't know how, the difference between. No, no, no. But when the car breaks down at the side of the road, he's the one that ought to... Call AAA. Call AAA, not you. Yeah. Oh, you know? totally. Oh, no, and but, that's but that's the thing where uh, that I saw. So that's where you say, like how it. unfortunate! Wow, that you've got the AAA you got card, card, right? Don't right. handle that. Let me let me know how it yeah. went. That was the biggest Keep thing I noticed. Yeah. That I feel like my kid could build a uh, could build a house, but he didn't want to call the dentist. That's right. Right. I'm not even kidding you. No, I know they don't like to make phone calls. Yeah. And here's my hypothesis. When when oh you don't hate it okay when we were little and if you're my friend yeah you know and I'm calling you yeah. on the landline because oh, you had to talk to the parent yeah 
Uh, Hello, I knew what you were say, yeah. Mr. And Mrs. Quinn. Yeah. Right? Yeah, always. Can This is Julie Lithcott. Right. Can Bridget, Bridget come, come to the, the phone? phone? Right? We had to She's go through. She's having dinner right now, Julie. I'll tell you right. what. I'll up the ante. <laughs> this is a generation of boys who never have to call a girl in high school and have her dad answer. I know. Oh, or even right. come to the door. Right. They right. can text from the car and say, right. I'm here. Come out. Right? Or, so or all of those right. formalities. Or an That's right. little yeah. brother or something. Right. I mean, when my first my first writing jobs, I was living in New York City, and I would have to call athletes and agents and mm-hmm. yeah. things that were super scary and I was terrified and I and I was not that much older than my son and I think how did I do it yeah but it was different yeah it was different we've gone very far afield though <laughs> no but it's fun and, and also we get to use Julie for all of her insights <laughs> we have her trapped therapist. in a sweat lodge it is a sweat it lodge, a sweat Becoming lodge. It's a very sweaty, sweaty. One today yeah I had one more thing I wanted to say backing way 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 up which is I remember it's about Dan I remember reading... My husband. Yeah, he's cute. He's good hair. His um, long hair. Hey. Sorry. Uh, I like bald. I've told you that. I like but bald too, Larry. Dan has like a lot of hair. Anyway, um, yeah. Uh, I remember reading when I realized like, oh my God, I've gone to grad school, but I actually, in something else, but I really want to be a writer. Yeah. And I would secretly read all the writing things. Uh-huh. And I read John Gardner's On Writing. Mm-hmm. And there's a line in that where he says, um, one of his, the best advice he can give a young writer is... Get a partner who will support you, mm-hmm. and he meant financially and emotionally. Mm-hmm. He's like because that you're going to need that. Yeah. And the person I was with, who is my husband now, I thought he will always support me. Yeah. And he has. Yeah. And that's essential. Well, yeah, finding the right life partner yeah. is um, one of the best things we can do for ourselves. And I don't mean to suggest it's possible for right. everybody or Not easy, at all. but. Uh, we have to know but who we are and what we need and what we want yeah. and look for compatibility yeah. and complementary skills. My husband is organized. He's on top of things. He's a budget guy. You know, he plans. He's a handyman. He can fix anything. I can't do any of that. No, neither. You know, um, we made a pact. He was going to do all the laundry. I was going to do all the dishes. We oh each gosh, thought we got we the better the end of the deal. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. In fact, yeah. I didn't learn how to use the washing machine until I had a child. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about these life skills. Yeah. I, I had you never, never done my own laundry. Not one really? time until I had a baby and I was 30. Is that scary? Uh, I started when I was 12. Yeah. That's My the mom threw be. her hands up and said, yeah. I'm not doing your laundry anymore. Yeah. No, it's terrible. But, you know, I have a lifetime of not doing laundry and I love it. Nice. Oh, it's mm-hmm. something a little zen about the folding aspect. Yeah. Yeah. He I hate it. folding laundry. Yeah, me too. I don't mind it. I would rather do all the dishes. I know. I don't mind it. And I like the warm water. There we we would be remiss. <laughs> Yeah. What is this about? If we did not. This dis- is how it always is. In, in I, I listen to you guys. In the, in the light of, re- of Real American, yeah. we would be remiss to okay. not sort of discuss um, what led you to conceptualize writing that book. Yeah. And I think you have a really interesting background because it combines, and again, I'm so bad. I didn't read the book. I'm terrible. I, I have no future in radio. Um, <laughs> I read it. The feeling of growing up as an outsider with the feeling of growing up someone from a very prominent family. Because your dad's kind of famous. He's, His family has a long history of success and service. So I'm an African-American woman born to an African-American man and a white mother. I'm biracial. Technically, I identify as black. And this is my memoir on learning to love myself uh, after having loathed myself for decades because of what racism made me feel about myself and my people. And so what impelled me to write it was having done the work um, to arrive at this place of self-love with a coach um, as a professional, as a dean at Stanford, working with an executive coach, learning what my triggers were, um, learning – 
you know, where the pain lurked inside of me and why and how I was performing to try to sort of never be called the N-word again or never be Mm -hmm. as happened to me on my 17th birthday in high school, my all-white high school in Wisconsin. Um, You know, I've come to terms with all of this and I'm telling the truth of it. I'm summoning the truth of it to myself, to my consciousness. And um, it healed me to be able to acknowledge what I was feeling and and how the degree of self-loathing I had experienced just to say it out loud to a coach began to heal me to write about it healed me further. I was writing about race in my MFA program when I wasn't writing about helicopter parenting. It was sort of what was begging for my attention. Mm. And we know how that is as mm-hmm. writers. You know, I'm so new to writing. I'm going to say this and I'm going to jinx myself, but I'm so new to writing. I've never had writer's block because I still have stuff coming, just knocking, you know, at the door of my consciousness, like, hello, it's time for me to be written about. And what that's you, what race was. And Black, you, Black Lives Matter was happening, mm-hmm. uh, was yeah. becoming. Trayvon Martin was murdered, mm-hmm. Michael Brown, you know, um, these national tragedies were happening as I was in a writing program. So I got to have the freedom to write and think and explore. And, um, and so, you know, my self love has emerged, uh, you know, at a time in our nation when we're doing a lot of reckoning around race. Mm -hmm. And I decided that what I was learning about myself was maybe important to share with those who could relate so fellow black folk, biracial people, people of color more broadly, more broadly than that, anyone who's had cause to feel like the other in America, you know, because of ethnicity or language or socioeconomic status or sexual orientation or, you know, gender fluidity, whatever, you know, so many of us are meant to, are, are made to feel like we are the other Jews, you know, right? There's so many of us who are not belonging to that term real American when those folks say it. And I just wanted to write this for anyone who's been made to feel like an outsider because that journey to love yourself, regardless of what other people may say or feel about you or your group, that's sort of an essential uh, aspect of this, this one precious life we're living. So I thought it might help people. And you know what? When I'm out on book tour, just like last night, some woman comes up to me in tears, just can barely speak because whatever I have managed to say in my reading has touched her so deeply. Somewhere she had not even remembered was there. Same time, I had a little five-year-old white girl in Baltimore, Maryland say after listening to my reading, which is full of language. So I kept looking at her parents like, are you sure you want to keep her here? She was five. Adult language? (laughs) Well, I used the F word. I used the N word. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, she said, this little girl said to her parents on the drive home about my reading. She said, I know she was talking to my ears, but I felt like she was talking in my heart. And I thought that's compassion right there. She was moved to feel something about a set of circumstances she has had no experience with at five, you know, and being a little white kid. And um, and I thought, all right, this is something. This is a thing. And I'm going to keep doing it. So when you talk about an other, then it's sort of a universal idea. Yeah. Oh, I think so. I mean, my experience is about blackness and about brown skin, but but certainly more broadly, we are constantly otherizing each other. I think mm-hmm. it, I'm not an anthropologist, but I imagine it goes way back in mm-hmm. human homo sapien history. We needed to know who our group was, right? The, right. Our group versus the us and them was Sneakers. an essential yeah. mm-hmm. way to protect ourselves. But I think in this 21st century, when we have you know, put people on the moon and sent machines to Mars and sent other machines to orbit other planets, why can't we in this 21st century that unpack the genome, figure out 
how to actually like and love and have compassion for all humans, regardless of the shape of our noses and our skin color and the texture of our hair. Because of what you just said, because the last frontier is the human heart. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah. Mark that. Hashtag. Be cute. Is that yours or did you read that somewhere? I just said it. Oh, my God. The last frontier is a human. She is good. But that is, I have to say, I mean, it's in the acknowledgments of my book, but that is what transformed my writing after 20 years was getting out of my fucking head and being brave enough to look at my heart. I was terrified of it. And I think our education system, our society, our culture, everything is always in the head. And we think the heart is weak and we think it's flaky and that sounds like California New Age crap. And it's as far from that as it is yeah, possible. That's so to be. beautiful, BQ. That is, that's my new mantra. I will credit you every okay, time um, I think of it and say it. <laughs> but I mean, I read Real American on a plane, and you know how terrible it is me. to cry on a plane. Yes, it's the worst. you and texted I was, like, me. I ugly think crying yeah, on a plane. Yeah, you like I, I just put it stop. down, and I'm crying like <laughs> next to people on this plane. That's of course as a writer, right? Nothing yeah. Yeah. moves me more than to know that someone was moved to to that yeah. degree by my writing. Yeah, yeah. So and thank you for being a reader. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, and also one of the things I was most touched by was just the bravery. You can say like, oh, yeah, Black Black Lives Matter and it's a moment. But it's also you're putting yourself out there in a way that is, to me, really brave. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 50. Back to age. I'm age and stage. I just feel like, fuck it. This is my life. And this is now. And I don't know how much time I I get. And I'm going to, I have finally dusted off this voice. I've excavated this voice. You know, I've done the archaeological dig and I have now got my voice and I am going to use it for as long as I can. So this is the product of 50 years of living. It's not something that was imbued to you at birth because, you know, getting my read on, I'm just, interested in your family background and I thought, well these are this is a generations of successful people mm. and i assume well this person came out of the womb like here i am i'm successful i've been taught to be this way and i can do anything but that's not the truth is it well it's partly true i think you know my father would be 100 if he had lived he died at 77 but in this april will be at the anniversary of his birth of 100 years and so here he was an african-american man in the jim crow south oklahoma constantly told uh, awful things, you know, treated in that in that awful way. We've all studied and um, left the South and was educated up at Bates College in Maine and went on to med school, class of 43 at Boston University. But my black father, born in 1918, was born to a black father who served the black community in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so my black grandfather um, – it was a physician, and that is pretty unusual. He was also educated at BU. So, yes, I arrived mm-hmm. into the world extremely privileged, the child of a doctor and a grandchild of a doctor, both black. But, of course, racism is agnostic to your degrees, to who your daddy is, to your class. Right. And so while being middle class and then upper middle class, my father was a Carter appointee, you know. I was still the black kid in my class. I was still subjected to, you know, the microaggressions, as we call them now, all the way through from early childhood up to the present. Well, what about another layer um, that you were also black dad, white mom, upper middle class? Did you fit in with the black people too? There were no black people. Oh, yeah. okay. Wisconsin. Yeah, oh, so Wisconsin. I grew up yeah. in white places. My dad, you know, and, and this is something I really interrogate my parents around in the book, but my father's been dead, so I'm really interrogating my mother, my lovely mother who's Wisconsin. 79 yeah. and is a part of my life on a daily basis. We all live together in Palo Alto, and I have taken it on with her. Oh, that's like, right. How He's... dare you raise me in all white towns? Because 
there were no peers and no mentors who could teach me, comfort me, console me, be there for me when the shit happened. And so I was on an island. I was terribly, terribly alone. It messed me up psychologically. And I carried that um, screwed upness into decades of my adulthood. And that's the stuff I worked out ultimately. I mean, it plunged into a self-loathing despite being a corporate lawyer and having these brand name schools on my resume. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just trying never to be called the N-word again. So I was just living a performative life. Mm -hmm. trying to win the approval and the applause of white folks, basically. And um, so outwardly successful, um, inwardly really quite hollow. And yeah, it begs the question, what is success and what is happiness and all of that? Um, I want to be clear because – I want to be super clear here. I'm not in any way say that I was saying that I was suffering. I being middle class as a child and then upper middle class being light skinned, you know, I have all kinds of privileges that darker uh, African Americans don't have. That poor, you know, poor working class African Americans don't have. Um, so I'm really clear when I when I lead into my doing a reading for my memoir. This isn't a memoir of suffering, um, but it is a memoir from somebody you might, as a white person, educated white person, might say, "Oh, I went to school with someone like this. Mm-hmm. I went to grad school with someone like this. I worked with someone like this." Yes, and these are the things that happened in those places. These are the mm-hmm. things that happened to me that society tells me shouldn't matter. Or I shouldn't play the victim card. Or I shouldn't play the race card. I should just not, you know, be wounded by um, the poisonous. <laughs> strip of racism. I'm only laughing because this isn't a video podcast, but if it was, you could have seen a kind of cool little dance yeah. <laughs> that Julie just did while you were talking. Yeah. But also, talking. like, the gestures of, it's everywhere. Yeah. It's everywhere. It's yeah. like, it doesn't yeah. matter. It doesn't matter. And, and uh, you know, we, we, that thing about the self-loathing in those places, like, you can be anyone in those places and be filled with self-loathing. Yeah. That's a fact, too, right? Like, what we think of as success is not always... Uh, That's the personal... success of the mind, not the heart. Yeah, it is. Or it it's is. success self, according yeah. to somebody's definition yeah. of brand and yeah. salary and title. Yeah. Success for you, not me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> what I'm full of loathing for is that we're out of time. Yeah. I know this is really good. Although we might die if we stay here much longer. I know. We it's might. Hot. It's very hot. Um, Julie. Yeah. Larry. This is the part where I ask you to give your website, okay. Twitter, all that stuff. Yeah. So lay it on us. Right on. The website is julielifcotthames.com. No hyphen. Just julielifcotthames.com. Uh, Instagram, jlifcotthames, Real Americans Everywhere, How to Raise an Adult. Facebook, julielifcotthames, How to Raise an Adult. Twitter, at Dean Julie, at Raise an Adult. Whoa, do you manage all those accounts? No, I told you I have worked on so many. I like, I, I, I like, felt scared. I do for a you. lot of uh, yeah. my own posting, yeah. but I have, um, oh, that's good. I, okay. I that's work awesome. with a team. Let this mm-hmm. be a blueprint for you, writers. That's how it works. No, but seriously, I do think we tend to think we need to do it all, and I'm inspired. Yeah, to totally. Think it's a community effort, you know? Create your community. Yeah, and it's great to work with artists. Yeah. And it's great to. You know, when when someone decides to make your work theirs or their work yours, yeah. you know, and you're in that partnership, it's beautiful. I feel I definitely am working for myself, but I have an amazing team of other people who work for themselves, love and it. we collaborate, and it's the best. Yeah, I love it. I so love being cool. a writer. I absolutely me do. Too. I, I got about it. five or six books in total. I think. Did Thank you hear you. me say that? Five or yeah. six total. Then you're going to yeah. switch gears again. Yeah, then you're going to become a carny. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. Why not? Carney. Oh. Are there going to be carnies? I in don't the future? know, but I don't think I'm going to be a carny. I, I have too them. many teeth. <laughs> so far, you it's don't early. know. It's Age. early. Just stop taking care of them. <laughs> BQ, uh, oh, what, what is your me? trifling little uh, uh, so thing I compared have to that? Two 
and I can't handle it. Uh, at B Quinterest on Twitter or Instagram. And Facebook is just me, Bridget Quinn. But you There's got a website. There's so many. I don't know how you find me. You have a website. Oh, yeah, BridgetQuinnAuthor.com. Thanks. I don't have a website. All I've got is Twitter and, and um, Instagram. Instagram. <laughs> At that Larry Rosen. At that Larry 52. Rosen. That's me. I do <laughs> kind of have, have a website. It is, is it good for the Jews? Oh. oh, that's nice. Yeah, you can't get enough of me and you want to hear more of me every Very week. Amazing. Got two podcasts. Yep. Nice. Larry, let's thank Lorianne Doyle, who is our producer and co founder of Babylon Salon, where Julie will be appearing on March 9th, and Beth Weingarner and Lee Kravitz. And if you want to thank them through us, just send yes. us an email at uh, producer, no, wrong, no. wrong email. Yeah. Grottopod at gmail.com. Yes. I almost gave the uh, email for Is It Good for the Juice? So you can send one there too if you want. <laughs> He'll uh, still read it. Twitter is The Grotto Pod. Right. That's me. Did you already see Music by Sugartown? No, I'm, uh, I'm waiting. I'm okay. reading it. And Music by Sugartown. Thanks, Sugartown. Awesome. Go to, um, uh, we're now on Stitcher Radio and uh, the old iTunes. iTunes. Download, subscribe, subscribe, tell a friend. Rate, yeah. Do all share. that stuff. And now it's time for Bridget to get us out here before we all see. I don't need to say this to Julie because she's got oh this. My gosh. But you guys, read, write, just keep working. Mm-hmm.